Well, you can turn with me in your Bibles to the prophet Isaiah chapter 42. There are four servant songs in Isaiah. We'll have a pop quiz uh, next week, 42, 49, 50, and 53. I have preached them before, uh, 49 and 53 more recently, but we'll do 42 this week, uh, this week and then 50 next Lord's Supper, uh, because there is some covenant redemption type language that we see in the servant songs, especially 42 and 49. And so tonight we'll look at the chosen servant in Isaiah 42. Uh, We'll look at verses 1 through 9, and so begin reading at verse 1. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastland shall wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will give a keep you and give you as a covenant to the people as a light to the Gentiles to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Amen. Well, let us pray. Lord our God, we are thankful for your plan of redemption, that eternal plan, Thank you, O God, that you reveal it to us by way of covenant. Thank you, O God, for this covenant of redemption as we ponder and consider that eternal plan that the Father plans, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit applies. And thank you that this is the one will of God in threefold execution to save sinners like us. Thank you that it was the servant, it was the Son, or it was the Son who came down to be that servant, the one who was perfect in every way, the one who is perfect in every way, namely our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, O God, for his finished work. Thank you, O God, for his rule. Thank you, O God, uh, for his word. Thank you for his obedience. And thank you for his suffering that he endured on behalf of wretched sinners like us. And we know, O God, that we are a people who have hope, and we have hope in Christ, and we have hope in the finished work of this servant. And so we ask, O God, that you would comfort our hearts this night, knowing that you care for us, knowing that you love us, and knowing that you are bringing forth your plans each and every day. We confess, O God, we don't always see it. We confess, O God, we don't always feel it. But we know, O God, as your word indicates, and as your word says, you are working all things for good to those who are called according to your purpose, even as your gospel advances. And so we pray, O God, that we would be encouraged by this. We pray, O God, that we'd be comforted by this as we come to consider your word this night. Thank you. There's mercy and forgiveness in the Savior. There's mercy and forgiveness in the servant. Thank you, O God, for what he has done for us. So we ask, O God, that you be with us tonight tonight by your uh, spirit. Please give us illumination from on high to better understand what is going on here. We know that we need your spirit to teach us the things of you. So be with us now by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. 
Well, as we've been going through for some time, the covenant of redemption is a mysterious doctrine. That is, it's hard for us to grasp and understand, uh, but we still recognize in Scripture that God has revealed himself by way of covenant, and there has been covenant language uh, in God's word about this eternal transaction between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Especially last time we looked at Luke twenty two twenty nine, where Jesus says to his disciples, I covenant to you a kingdom, just as my father covenanted one to me. And certainly Ephesians 1 is uh, ripe with covenant of redemption type language. Uh, but there is also similar language as well in the Old Testament. Certainly we'll look at Zechariah sometime soon, but these servant songs have... Uh, language that speaks of this blessed eternal transaction between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the salvation of the elect in Christ Jesus. And so we spent some time in the covenant series in general. We've kind of driven to this point. Uh, we're in that section that focuses on the kingdom of Christ. That is, we looked at the new covenant, which is the covenant of grace, that covenant that God makes with his elect, uh, that he, uh, as the uh, through Christ, the mediator. And certainly as we engage in preaching, certainly as we engage in the sacraments and the ordinances, it is covenantal. It is new covenantal. It is covenant of grace type of stuff. Well, that covenant of grace given in time and space is founded on that eternal transaction between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that covenant of redemption really is a covenant of works for Christ that he would come down, he would take on human flesh, and he would be obedient in his human nature for wretched sinners like us, that we might then receive grace. He worked that we might receive grace based on his finished and completed work. Now, this doctrine is a great mystery. Sam Renahan says, Scripture presents that eternal purpose and promise of salvation to mankind metaphorically in the mode of a covenant transacted between the persons of the Trinity. So it really is focusing in on God's plan of redemption in Christ Jesus. And certainly we see even the old looking ahead to what the, uh, the servant would do, but that is founded on the plan between Father, Son, and Spirit. So we'll see that tonight in the prophet Isaiah. It's good for us to have some historical context when it comes to the prophets, uh, especially the prophet Isaiah. It's a big book. Chapters 1 through 39, I think, focus primarily on the 8th century when Isaiah lived. Not saying there isn't application further on in history, uh, but primarily focuses in on that 8th century. But then you turn to Isaiah 40 through 66, and he's looking ahead from his time. He's looking ahead to a time, especially in Isaiah 40 through 55 looking ahead to exile. At the time of Isaiah's prophecy, the people have not been sent into exile yet, but he's looking ahead to a time when they would be. And so when the people are in exile, when the people are in despair, when the people are concerned and perplexed about the promises of God, he gives them some hope by way of these servant songs. There's comfort, there's what God would do. There's the transformation God would bring. And he gives hope to the remnant who are taken off to Assyria, who are taken off to Bab Babylon. He gives them hope. There is a servant who is going to come. There is a servant whom I have chosen. There is a servant who is perfect. There is a servant who shall suffer for his people. And so really these servant songs are meant to cause God's people to look to God to look up for hope in times of great despair. 
And so in Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9, we see him prophesy about the chosen servant, who is the one who rules with justice and kindness for the whole world. He is the chosen servant, but Isaiah 42 kind of focuses in on the rule of the servant, what, how he rules and what he rules. And so we'll look at this idea under two headings this evening. First of all, we'll see the role of the servant, verses 1 through 4. And secondly, we'll see the rule of the servant, verses 5 through 9. So the role of the servant, and then the rule of the servant in verses 5 through 9. So let's first look at the role of the servant in verses 1 through 4. Seeing this chosen one, seeing the justice that he shall bring. Now again, it is in the time of exile, or the prophesying about the time of exile. And what's interesting, too, is in this period, in this, in, these, in this section of prophecy, God includes the Gentiles in the salvation that would come. There's going to be hope for the Gentiles, but there's also going to be hope for Israel. There's going to be this widespread glory that doesn't, doesn't just extend to Israel, but extends to all the ends of the earth. Now, remember, Israel was supposed to spread God's glory to the ends of the earth. They didn't do that. Remember, Adam was supposed to spread God's glory to the ends of the earth. He didn't do that. But there is this one who is the servant who will spread God's glory to the ends of the earth. It includes uh, Jews, but it also includes Gentiles as well. And remember, he's prophesying when they would have been in exile. And so they would have had questions in exile. God, what of your promises to David? What of your promises to Abraham? Even though they would have perhaps remembered some of the words of Isaiah, uh, the comforting words about the, the shoot that would come from the stump of Jesse or Emmanuel who would come, they would have remembered that. They still perhaps would have been perplexed. Brethren, there are things in life that are difficult, aren't, isn't there? There are things in life that are hard to understand and grasp. And sometimes we need to be reminded as pilgrims and exiles in the land of where our hope lies. I'm not belittling again the struggles that we go through, but in our times of despair, there is someone we can look to. There is someone that we can cling to. There is someone that we can hold on to in such times. And so God gives this remnant a hope. And this remnant people would have looked and been reminded as they walked through their lives in Babylon, as they walked through their lives in other lands, there is a servant who is coming. There is a servant who's going to come and he's going to save his people. So there is going to be hope, but it's not just going to be for the remnant. It's also going to be for the ends of the earth as well. In chapter 41, verses 21 through 29, we see him present the case against Israel concerning the futility of idols. In chapter 41, at the beginning, verses 1 through 20, it's the assurance of God's help, how God's going to bring help, not just to Israel, but to Gentiles as well. And then he says in 21 through 28, he's presenting before them like a courtroom. See, your idols can do nothing. Now remember, Israel worshipped idols, didn't they? The nation of Israel worshipped idols. That's why they're, they were sent into captivity. Remember, the Gentiles worshipped idols. And so what he says in verse 29, indeed, they are worthless. Their works are nothing. Their molded images are wind and confusion. They couldn't save. They couldn't do anything. When they fall over, you have to pick them up. Some gods they are. And so what he's saying is they are but nothing. 
And so in light of that, he then comes and says in verse 42, behold. In a lot of ways, he's saying to the idolaters, behold, there is a gospel that is coming. There is good news that is coming. There is good news that shall come very soon. And again, the remnant would have hoped in this very thing. He says, behold, and he goes on to highlight what they ought to behold and what they ought to look forward to. There is no one like God, and thus God, uh, Yahweh, is going to give his servant who would be like any other. He would be God himself. So he says, behold, and he says, my servant whom I uphold. So in verse 1, we see that servant's appointment. And we see that language there very clearly, my servant. Now, what's interesting is Israel is called a servant. In Isaiah 41, 8. And in Isaiah 49.3, Israel was supposed to be the servant to serve Yahweh and to spread forth his glory. And so some commentators have questioned, is there a corporate identity? Is there an individual identity? But certainly in, uh, when it came to the history of Israel, it was kind of a both and type of thing, right? When it came to the Davidic covenant, usually what happened to the nation was tied to and connected with the individual. Namely, if one king did what was right, the people typically did what was right. If a king did what was bad, the people typically did what was bad. So it was eventually tied to and connected with that Davidic king. And so there is that both and going on here. There's, Israel was meant to be as a people, as a nation. They were meant to spread God's glory, but David's son would be the one who does that. And so very clearly here, my servant is going to be the true Israel, but he's going to be different than Israel, right? He's going to be better than Israel, and it's going to be an individual. It's almost as if Israel, ethnic Israel, is a type of this one who would come and be that true Israel. In a lot of ways, we are getting a glimpse into that plan of God. As God unfolds his redemptive history, as God unfolds his plan leading to the one who is son who would come, in whom the father is well pleased, he's building to that point, he's building to that one throughout the entire Old Testament. The seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the ark of the, co- the, ark of the covenant pointing to him, the seed of David, and this language of servant. And there's other language in Isaiah as well. The branch, uh, the, the child who would come in Isaiah 9, Emmanuel, as we have already said. All this language pointing to this one who is our Christ. And so he says, my servant, this individual, he is the one I will uphold. Now, again, there's a lot of covenant of redemption type language here. I mean, there's Yahweh, the servant of Yahweh. And the spirit of Yahweh, Yahweh, the servant of Yahweh, and the spirit of Yahweh, or we could say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we know who the servant is, spoiler alert, it's Jesus, according to Matthew 12. It's going to be him, it's going to be the Son, he is going to be the servant, and that Son, who is our Christ, is given the Spirit without measure. So my servant whom I uphold, he shall have aid from the Father, as he takes on human flesh, that was the terms of the covenant, that the Son would take on human flesh, and the Father would give him all he needs. And notice, he is that chosen one, that elect one, in whom my soul delights. 
Remember, Israel was supposed to be the elect one in whom God's soul delighted. They were not, and they did not bring delight to God, did they? So this one is going to be different. This one is better. This one is the chosen elect one. He is the one set apart to be this very servant. I will delight in him. I will delight in his work that he does, and I will give him the spirit. I have put my spirit upon him. Now, remember in the Old Testament, there were individuals who had the spirit in bunches, in spurts, in uh, especially when they were messianic figures. I mean, Samson had the spirit. I know people don't like that, but you know how I feel about Samson. I like him more than other people like him, but he did have the spirit. He was a judge. He was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. David had the spirit come upon him. That is, they had the spirit uh, with measure in these restrained ways. But the servant uh, of the Yahweh, he shall have the spirit without measure. And guess who has the spirit without measure? The Lord Jesus. That language comes straight out of John th- chapter 3. Jesus is given that Holy Spirit without measure. And the New Testament, we see kind of all this type of language. My elect one, my servant type language, maybe not quite, but elect one for sure, or beloved and spirit all come. And we see this at the baptism of our Lord. When he is set apart, when he is set apart for his mission, when he is set apart as the one in uh, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, in whom I delight. The father speaking to the son and the spirit descends. That's why we're not uh, modalists. That's why we're as one God and three persons. And we see all three persons uh, who is one God uh, operating in one threefold execution. And so we see that there at the baptism and even to that image that is going on especially in mark's gospel is there's something new coming there's a new exodus that is occurring and remember too there's a lot of language that's very exodus like in isaiah the people have been sent into exile now they're going to be from exile in a lot of ways that return under ezra nehemiah or zerubbabel ezra nehemiah is actually a second exodus in a lot of ways but it's not the full completion The events, the exodus of the Old Testament points to one who wouldn't just redeem people from physical bondage, but redeem people from spiritual bondage, namely our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what that uh, servant is going to do. He is upheld. He is chosen. He has the spirit without measure. And notice what he is going to do. Verse 1. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. There's a lot of kingly language that we see in these verses. He's going to be a king unlike any other. And one of the hopes of that child in Isaiah 9 is that he would establish justice forever. And so this servant is going to be that also that one who's going to establish justice forever. Because Israel didn't do it, Adam didn't do it, but this one is going to do that. And that language of justice, righteousness, rightness is repeated, especially in these first four verses. Even that stump king, even that one from the shoot of Jesse in Isaiah 11, he is going to rule with justice. He is going to have the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, that is the branch 
or the shoot, if you will, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. My delight is in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness. He shall judge the poor. There was no righteousness in Israel. There was no righteousness in Judah. There was no righteousness in the lands. But this king will bring forth righteousness, not just for Israel, but for the Gentiles as well. And even to that language in Isaiah 11 there, I mean, the idea of a stump is the idea that it's been, you know, everything's been laid waste. So in the midst of everything being laid waste, there's a little bit of hope that's coming up. And so the same thing is true with this servant. In times of exile, there's hope for the remnant, hope for the people of God. So the servant has been appointed for this. Notice the servant's rule in verses two through four. I know I'm confusing you because my second point's the rule of the servant, but in verses two through four, we see the character of his rule. And in verses five through nine, we see the extent of his rule. But notice we're going to see the character of his rule in verses two through four. And notice the first thing about the character of it is that it's not going to be violent. Now, I know he's going to make his enemies his footstool. I know there's going to be righteousness and justice. I know he's a mighty warrior. But in contrast with Nebuchadnezzar, in contrast with Cyrus, in contrast with the kingdoms of this world, his power is going to be brought in in a different way. It's not going to be all pomp and show. It's not going to be all blood and guts. It's not going to be all swords and tanks. It's going to be through suffering. It's going to be through humility. It's going to be in a quiet way. And in that quiet way, he's going to bring about his justice to the ends of the earth. That's hard for us to grasp sometimes. We think the best way to do it is have the most guns blow everybody up. That's not what he's going to do. He's going to do it notice. He will not cry out, nor will he raise his voice. He doesn't need to be heard. He doesn't need to be, he doesn't need to brag about his conquests. Look at all these nations. He doesn't need to do that. Now his glory shall be seen, but it shall be so self-evident. He does not need to brag so to speak. And so he will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. His ruler rule is going to be different from the kings of the earth. And so it's going to be without violence, but also it's going to have care for the helpless, has care for all of those in his kingdom. Now, again, even when you consider the doctrine of the covenant of redemption, Christ was given to be king, and Christ is going to be given a kingdom, or the son will be given a kingdom based on his finished work. And we see a lot of kingship and kingdom type ideas, even though if the words aren't there, but ideas in these verses. And so in verses three and four, we see his care. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. A sign of a great king is one who ought to care for all of his subjects. The sign of a tyrannical king is one who cares for none of his subjects, but just himself. But the sign of a good king is one, as you see, the image is clear, a bruised reed. He doesn't go to that bruised reed that's already bending and snap it even more. He doesn't go to that smoking flax that is, has its you know, last legs and just 
quenches it. He nourishes, he comforts, he nourishes, he uh, cares for all of them. As bruised reed, he will not break, and as smoking flax, he will not quench. And again, he will bring forth justice for truth. Again, Israel failed in righteousness. Israel broke bruised reeds. Israel quenched smoking flaxes. Unfortunately, you and I probably bruise broken reeds or uh, break broken reeds or bruised reeds and quench smoking flaxes more than we would like to. But Christ is not going to do that. The servant is not going to do that. He's going to bring forth justice for the truth. And then notice too in verse four, this plan shall not fail. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastland shall wait for his law. He himself will suffer, but he shall triumph and his plan shall not fail. His work shall not fail, even though it always might, it might seem like it. And it includes not just, again, uh, the emphasis isn't just on Jews, but Gentiles as well. That's why he says the coastlands, that is the ends of the earth, the farthest reaches, they shall be brought in and they shall have justice. They shall have the truth. They shall have the law. So the only hope for Israel and the only hope for the nations is this servant. He is the one who engages in this role for his people. Now, one comfort for us here ought to be the fact that the servant does care for us. I mean, that was an encouragement to the remnant. We're in exile, but what do we do? Well, there's this servant who's still coming. And one of the comforting things about God's word and God's gospel, usually as redemptive history unfolds, mankind does something wicked and sinful. And usually like the next chapter, there's some sort of gospel proclamation, right? <laughs> I mean, Adam sins, Genesis 3.15. See, the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Tower of Babel, God's going to scatter the ends of the earth. Oh, Genesis 12, God's going to gather the ends of the earth. The people go into exile. Well, even before you go into exile, Here's some hope for you. There's a child coming. There's a guy named Emmanuel coming. There's the branch who's coming. There's servant who's coming. And so they would have been carried off into exile, been taken away from their home, and they would have had this hope for them as they longed for that servant. Now, brethren, our Christ cares for us, doesn't he? Even though we don't always feel it all the time, we know what his word says concerning his love and his care for us. And perhaps there are times in your life you do something ridiculous, but God is very gracious to you, isn't he? God is very patient with us. This servant is very patient with us. Christ is very patient with us. We are bro uh, bruised reeds. We are smoking flaxes. And thankfully, the Savior will not break us, nor will he quench us, because he is gracious and he is good. And that's comforting for people who are in exile. And that's how Peter refers to us. This world is not our home. This present evil age in which we live in is not the place we shall dwell in forever. We have a home that awaits us. And as we walk this land, we have hope 
in the servant. And thankfully, have hope that the uh, we have hope with the uh, with the the comfort, hope and comfort that the servant has already come, and the servant is has uh, died, and the servant is bringing in his kingdom. Another great comfort for us too is when you consider this covenant of redemption, is that Christ has accomplished his work, but he continues to apply his benefits by the Spirit. That is, every time the gospel goes forward. Every time you grow in your sanctification, every time a sinner is saved, the covenant of redemption is being fulfilled. So it's not just some abstract, highfalutin mumbo-jumbo or theological language. It ought to be a comfort for us that right now the covenant of redemption is, uh, is advancing. Right now, Christ and his finished work is being applied. Right now, the servant is spreading forth his justice the ends of the earth that ought to give us great comfort the servant cares for us by dying for us but the servant still cares for us by praying for us he loves us and he cares for his people whom he has saved so that's the role of the servant let's then look secondly at the rule of the servant in all of these servant songs uh, we have what's called a motir calls a tailpiece to further confirm what has already been said. And one thing that's kind of interesting uh, about the relationship between verses 1 through 4 and verses 5 through 9, in verses 1 through 4, Yahweh speaking to Israel, Behold, my servant. In verses 5 through 9, Yahweh is speaking to the servant. That is, we see what it means for the people of Israel, and by extension us, we also get a glimpse into the interaction between God and the servant in verses 5 through 9. And notice who speaks first in verse 5. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. Why does he speak in this heavenly uh, creational type language? Well, it's to highlight that he is above all things. He is one over all of life. Every breath that we take is because of God, right? In him, we live and move and have our being. And even if you don't believe on Christ, the reason you still have breath is because of him. And the way in which we have eternal life is through his supernatural work, his saving work. But the reason we have temporal life now is because of him. But the point is, he's over all things. God is in control over all things. He is the one who made the heavens. He is the one who stretched them out. And that, and the, high, the thing he's highlighting here is he is sovereign over all, but also that um, now this was he, his eternal plan. His eternal plan was always about uh, Christ Jesus, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3. All things are purposed in this one who would come. All these things uh, that we see fulfilled in Christ are founded on his eternal plan. So the one who is creator brings them about. The one who is sovereign over all brings these things about. And the one who is God, this is his plan. And he says in verse 6, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will hold your hand. There's a lot of imagery here in verse 6, verses 6 through 9, connected with Israel, contrasting between what the servant would do and contrasting what Israel was supposed to do. God will uphold him. 
God will keep him. I, the Lord, Yahweh, have called you, and you shall have righteousness. You shall be righteous. You I will carry and hold. I will give you, or I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. He's just affirming all that has been said in verses 1 through 4, but we see it between God speaking to the servant. And one uh, interesting sentence there in verse 6, I will keep you and I will give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. Covenant-type language, that he would be the fulfiller of it. Now, again, this is in contrast with Israel. Israel was given a covenant. God entered into covenant with Israel, but Israel failed to keep that covenant. Well, this one is going to be a covenant himself. And when was it that he transacted with the Lord? Before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, that the sun would come down and he would be the one who would be born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might then receive grace. And remember, too, the covenant of redemption is a covenant of works for Christ. Christ must keep it. And he does, that we might have grace. And remember, the Mosaic covenant was a covenant of works. The covenant made with Adam at the foundation of the world was a covenant of works. Adam failed, Israel failed, but the servant shall not fail. He shall keep it. He shall be given to the people. Certainly, uh, the people there refers to Israel, but not just to Israel, but he shall be a light to the Gentiles. And remember in Isaiah 9, the one who would be the light to the Gentiles will be that child he shall shine as a light in, uh, in, in uh, Zebulun and Naphtali in those places. He shall shine in those lands. Those who were in the shadow of darkness and shadow of death, that child, a light shall shine. Namely, the child who would be the one who shines. Well, here we see that language again. The servant will be given as a light to the Gentiles. And the widespread rule of the servant is also seen in Isaiah 49, emphasizing his word spread. To the Gentiles, his weapon he uses to spread his kingdom to the uh, to the ends of the earth, namely preaching, namely his word, namely who he is. But he shall be that light who shines in a dark place. Now we know that John 9, Jesus is that light of the world. And we know that he shall shine as a light in the hearts of his people. And notice this is further um, highlighted in verse 7. What shall he do to open the eyes of the blind? What's the purpose? To open the blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. He will open blind eyes, and he will be the one who releases and brings out. And remember as well in Isaiah 6, one of the problems with Israel at that time is they didn't see they didn't have eyes to see or ears to hear. And a lot of times that language is actually judgment type language. They did not have eyes to see or ears to hear. But here he's kind of reversing that. What's this one going to do? He's going to open their eyes. And this is also used in Isaiah 61 to speak about one who would have the spirit upon him. Once again, the spirit, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 42, and Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me, the servant speaking, upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. 
He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that may they may be called trees of righteousness, the, the, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Well, that is used in Luke 4, where Jesus reads the scroll of Isaiah 61. He says to them, today has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is that servant, and Jesus knew that as he engaged in his work. And so that is exactly what he does. He opens blind eyes, those who did not see before. They were blind, but now they see. And he releases them from their prison, from their shackles, from their bondage to sin, and gives new life. And again, this was a hope for the remnant in exile. There is going to be one who comes. There is going to be one who returns. What's interesting as well, Paul also understood that he was part of redemptive history, especially with that Gentile portion of bringing light to the Gentiles. And I Acts 26, verse 18, as he recounts his conversion, this is Christ speaking to him. I will deliver you from the Jewish people in verse 17. Acts 26, verse 17 and 18. And then we'll look at verse 23. He says, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul understood this. Well, Christ said that he would do that, but Paul understood that he was part of God's redemptive plan to spread his gospel to the ends of the earth. Christ continues to do or continue to do through Paul. Then in verse 23, that the Christ would suffer. All the prophets point a look ahead. And Moses said would come that the Christ would suffer, that he'd be the first to rise from the dead and proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. It is a spiritual release. It is a salvation from sin is a salvation from bondage. It's salvation from one's own wickedness to open uh, one's eyes to their sin and to open one's eyes to who Christ is. Only God can do that. And only this, and it's through the son that one has this. So that's what he would do. That's his purpose. And then notice the promise of new things, the promise that this shall come to pass, verses eight and nine. I am the Lord, that is my name. What's the name of the Lord, dear brethren? Yahweh. I am who I am. And what does he say to Moses in Exodus 3? I am has sent you. Or tell the children, I am has sent you. That is, God said, I am the one who does not change. I am the covenant-keeping God. Well, here, I am the Lord, that is my name, it shall not change. And certainly we see the name of the Lord in Exodus 34, but there is only one who is God. There's only one glory to give to this God. And notice my glory, I will not give to another. 
What does that imply about this servant? And he goes on to say, nor my praise to carved images. What does that say about this servant? He isn't just a mere man, but he is God. He is not going to be like Israel, but he's going to be better than Israel. He is who one who shall be Yahweh. And John obviously highlights this many times in John's gospel. I am many times. Jesus says, I am. Uh, and you, uh, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your trespasses and sins. And let, uh, before Abraham was, I am. And that's when they all pick up stones to throw against him. Jesus is, I am. And Jesus is that servant. But God will not give his glory to another, but only to the one who is God. My glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Don't worship those futile things. Don't worship those things that are useless. Don't worship those things that have no life. Look to this one. And he's going to go talk about that. He talks about that in chapter um, 41, verse 17. Um, Sorry, 42, verse 17. They shall turn back. They shall be greatly ashamed. Those who trust in carved images, who say to the molded images, you are our gods. Do not trust in them. Or 21 through 25 of 42. It's the Lord whom we trust. The Lord is well pleased for his righteousness sake. Not in uh, one's idols, but in him. And in this one who is the servant. There's hope for the remnant, there's hope for righteousness, and there's hope that is found only in him, not to carved images. And he gives an assurance in verse 9. Behold, the former things have come to pass, the new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. These things are going to come to pass. These things are sure. And the universal hope is going to start in Zion. Universal hope is going to start in Jerusalem, namely in one who is an Israelite, namely Christ himself, but it's going to spread to the ends of the earth. Motir says, through the servant's law that is teaching, the privilege of one nation becomes the possession of all. In him, there is mercy. In him, all the nations of the earth are blessed, and they're blessed through faith because of his righteousness this is what god says to the servant and it's what the servant will do now there is a very clear quote of isaiah 42 in matthew 12 so you can turn with me to matthew 12 jesus has healed a man on the sabbath which the pharisees did not like And then in verses 15 through 21, Matthew includes a discussion about Jesus withdrawing and healing when he uses Isaiah 42. But then after that, he talks about how a house divided cannot stand. So he's doing some good sandwich work here for us. But notice in verse 15, Jesus knew that they wanted to destroy him, verse 14, but it wasn't his time to die. Jesus is not going to come kicking and screaming. He knew when his appointed time would come. And brethren, I know when we went through Mark's gospel and we saw the wicked show trial and how Jesus was taken by night and how unjust that really was, it really was unjust. But he also kind of goes quietly, doesn't he? 
quietly in the night, not all pomp and show. I'm certainly, I know he was carried off, but the show trial that leads up to that is all at night. In a lot of ways, it's quieter than perhaps what he could have done, but it wasn't his time to go just yet. He knew his appointed time to die. And so a great multitude still follows him and he healed them all. Pharisees wouldn't do that. The Pharisees are the ones who kick the bruised reed and break them. They're the ones who quench the smoking flax. But Jesus cares for the multitudes who follow them. He heals them, but he still warns them, verse 16, yet he warned them not to make him known. And notice why. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. Yes, he's going to care for these ones who are the least, but also he is not going to come kicking and screaming. He is going to go about his plan according to his father's plan, not the plan of the Pharisees, but the plan of his father. And so he says in verse 18, behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved. Interesting. My beloved, not elect. Now, elect and beloved are certainly go hand in hand. The one who is elect is beloved most certainly. But this is my beloved, alluding back to perhaps Matthew chapter 3 and the baptism of our Lord, in whom my soul is well pleased. Again, similar language from Matthew chapter 3. I will put my spirit upon him, Matthew chapter 3, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. That's pretty close to Isaiah 42, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory. His truth is going to be victorious. It's going to spread. And, and then it says, and his name, uh, his name, Gentiles, will trust. They will look to him. They will believe upon him. He is the one who's going to spread God's glory, and it shall be through his finished work. It shall be according to the plan of God. It shall be a glorious thing, but it's going to be according to God's plan and purposes, not the plans of others. And what he does is going to bring goodness and mercy and grace to those in need in his way. And the irony is the Pharisees are violent, aren't they? The Pharisees are the ones kicking and screaming and raising their voice. But Jesus does not. He is led like a lamb to the slaughter. Oswald says the point is plain. Like the child of Isaiah 9 and the branch of Isaiah 11, God's answer to the oppressors of the world is not more oppression, nor is his answer to arrogance more arrogance. Rather, in quietness, humility, and simplicity, he will take all of the evil into himself and return only grace. That is power. And brethren, that ought to give us a lot of comfort when we consider the rule of the servant, when we consider the advancement of the church. Brethren, it kind of advances quietly, doesn't it? We don't always see God working. Now, we have Isaiah 40, 42, verses 5 through 9. We know what's going to happen. But as we look around us, it, always, it doesn't seem like things are happening. But God's word reminds us things can come so very quietly. And how often do we hear about places where God's people are persecuted? Then you hear that the church is advancing quietly, that the kingdom of God is going forth and sinners are being saved. And there is great multitudes coming in quietly, despite all the oppression that occurs. 
You see, God's kingdom comes in ways we don't always understand. We know what he has called us to do, to preach his word, to spread his glory to the ends of the earth through that preaching, that covenant of redemption being fulfilled as the word of God goes forth, as salvation comes to his people. But we don't always see it. That ought to give us comfort. God always works. God is always bringing in his kingdom. And that ought to give us comfort and strength in this world. Even when it seems like things are declining, God is bringing in his kingdom. God is spreading his glory to the ends of the earth. And the response of the church for what the servant has done, you know what that ought to be? Praise. Sing a new song. You know what the new song is in the Old Testament? The song of salvation. He is spreading the song of salvation to the ends of the earth. And brethren, Christ is our hope. Christ is our hope in life and death. And in this world, brethren, always look to him. Let us pray. Lord our God, we are thankful for your mercy and for your grace and for the work of the servant. Thank you for the servant who came, namely Christ that a bruised reed he shall not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. And thank you, O God, for that this is founded on your eternal plan, that the Son would be the one who comes. Thank you that you gave your remnant hope as they went into exile. Thank you that you give us hope now as we are pilgrims in this land. Thank you, O God, that we can walk day by day looking to Christ, who is our Lord and our Savior. And we pray, O God, we be comforted and strengthened by what your word says, knowing your love and your care for us. May we care for others as well. But even though we don't always see uh, see things happening, O God, help us to remember your kingdom is coming in. It might seem quiet. It might not seem like you've raised your voice, O God. But we know, O God, your word does go forth. That your word does go forth and does not return void. It is glorified. And we're thankful, O God, you work in the hearts of people. You strengthen your saints and you save sinners. And we're thankful, O God, we don't always see the workings that are going on in the hearts and lives of others, but we know it is happening. And so we thank you for this, O God. And may this cause us to worship you all the more because we are not God, but you are. We do not see everything. We do not know everything. We don't see everything going on under the surface, O God, but you're the one who is working. And so may we put our faith in you. May we do what you have called us to do, to preach your word. May you do what you have called us to do, to worship and to praise. May you help us do what you have called us to do, to honor and glorify you. So we ask, God, you help us to do this by your spirit. Work within us, we pray, as your word goes forth. And thank you, God, for your promises that you have promised to do this and that your kingdom shall be brought in. And we pray, oh God, it be brought in through your preaching. We pray that be brought into the salvation of sinners even tonight, O God. And we pray, O God, that you be glorified in all things. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.